Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. Yeah, this is the hope that holds us together. is an accomplished singer-songwriter, musical producer and promoter, Jewish educator, and many other great things, including and especially a loving husband and father. After a year of quarantine due to the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 and 2021, Jewish kids are finally returning to summer camp. As we record this in June 2021, summer is getting underway, and it's great to be joined by one of the rock stars of the Jewish camping movement, and he's an actual rock star. Rick, it's an honor to welcome you to the My Teacher podcast. Rabbi Ed, it's awesome to be with you. We've been waiting so long to do this. I'm so happy to be with you. There's so much to talk about since we're just beginning to return to some semblance of normal life after over a year of disruption. Let me ask you, Rick, just in general, how are you doing now? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, you know, I, I feel like this time that we've had over the last year has been you know, tragic in, in many ways for the world, but in also many ways it's been healing and it's given us a lot of opportunities. Uh, it's given me a lot of opportunities to slow down and to look around and to be in one place with the people that I love and care about and to think about what's actually most important to me. So I, I really look at this year as a, a true blessing that I will look back for the rest of my life as an inflection point, for sure. Great. We'll return in a little bit to more details of how you got through the last year and the great work that you did for the community during this time. But I'd like to go back and explore the Rick Recht origin story. I know you come from St. Louis. What was your life like growing up, both in terms of family and your Jewish community involvement? Sure. Well, you know, I was an only child. I, I had two sweet parents. My, my mother came from a Orthodox background. She was brought up in a Jewish children's home, actually. And my father was a sort of non-observant, but very proud Jewish guy. And they came together and made a sweet Jewish household. Um, I went to a conservadoxus shul when I was a kid called Traditional Congregation, a real Hamishy small place that was literally a a decent sized house. That was it. <laughs> we like the classrooms were the bedrooms of that house. And so I, you know, I learned about my history as a Jew and learned about the foods and the culture and the language. But most importantly, you know, I, my most important learning came from home. It came from the values that my, my parents taught me as a kid. You know, our community here in St. Louis that I still live here is awfully Jewish. I went to a public school, but it was awfully Jewish. So there was, I was really surrounded by a lot of Jewish people when I grew up. And, um, and this was all the way until I had my bar mitzvah. I had my bar mitzvah in Israel at the wall, which was my parents' dream from before they even had me. And then I went to Minyan for a year. And then two good friends of mine dragged me to a, a nifty youth group event, uh, you know, reform youth group event at one of our local synagogues here. 
and they were playing Debbie Friedman's Habdallah and everyone was holding hands and hugging each other. And I was like, I found my people. And it was the first time I heard contemporary Jewish music, you know, someone singing that, you know, song leader style. And I'd never heard anything like that. And it was really sweet and comforting for me. And and it provided a beautiful soundtrack for so many of the memories that I made at that stage in my life. So many of the hands I held and so many of the people that I smooched, you know, I mean, it was always that the song leader was like right in the middle of the circle all the time. It wasn't me back then. I didn't want to be a song leader. I, I wanted to be on the outside of that circle for sure. And But that was like, you know, really how it all began. And then I went to uh, school out in Los Angeles. I went to USC to study business and communications, actually. And I played in a band out there and did a lot of entrepreneurial stuff. But I really was not involved with Jewish life in any meaningful way at that point in my life. Like many people that age, I sort of lost it. I didn't lose my Jewish identity, but I lost any level of observance of going to synagogue or knowing that I had a, a network. I didn't even know that there was a network to be had at that point. You know, it was it was just sort of like an open place for me religiously for many years until I, I came back to it as a as a young adult in my my late twenties. So <laughs> And wasn't your dad in the record business? He was. I'm I'm surprised you know that. So <laughs> My, my dad was in the record business, so I grew up with. My, so my dad was what's called what was called a rack jobber in those days, and that's like a guy who drives around in a like a van, literally. In my dad's case, he had a van with a bunch of racks in it, and he was maybe that's why I called a rack jobber. It was a bunch of racks in it, and with eight-track uh, uh, cassettes and and records, and he would drive mainly to African American neighborhoods where they sold the uh, music in gas stations. There weren't really, you know, the rec small record stores, but there weren't like Targets and Walmarts and all that kind of stuff at that time that were selling music. And so that was my dad's job. Our basement was stacked to the ceiling. And I mean the ceiling with A-Tracks and, you know, R&B and, you know, people like Elvis and Elton John and, you know, old Lenny Bruce comedy kind of stuff. That was the kind of stuff my dad sold. and. You know, I got a hold of some of that stuff. You know, my dad would give me some things that, you know, I idolized Elvis as a kid. And so I, I, you know, scrambled for those Elvis records. And so, yeah, that was sort of an introduction to me. You know, it was, I mean, my dad was musical. You know, he had played piano, had a beautiful voice, particularly singing in the shower. My <laughs> my mother was about the same, not, not like a piano player or anything like that, but a singer. And so it was just like a casual you know, casual musical family. We enjoyed music. We enjoyed Judaism. <laughs> we enjoyed each other. So you went, you were out in California for school, uh, but yeah. then I believe your mom got sick. And I'm wondering if you can take us to that sure. point in your life and what sure, happened. Sure, sure. So, you know, I played in a band out in Los Angeles from my sophomore year of college on, and it was just an incredible experience for me, you know, being able to play in all the clubs and everything in Hollywood. For Missouri Boy, that was like a really wild experience and yeah. real fun. It was like real. And it also helped me sort of cut my teeth on the business of music because yeah, I was always like the leader of the band. I was always like the guy who put together all the, you know, talked to the put together the promo packs and did the booking and all that kind of stuff. And so I actually stayed out in Los Angeles after I graduated. I worked for Capitol Records, the big cylindrical looking building that you see in all the, the shots of the Hollywood sign. That's the building that's right in front of it. So I worked there and then I went to guitar school for a year, um, a place called Music Institute in Hollywood. And that was incredible. And then I came home for Thanksgiving, you know, uh, uh, one one year, you know, about a 
whatever, two years after college, right after music, I graduated from Music Institute. And my mother had found out that she had lung cancer mm -hmm. and was like stage four lung cancer. So that, you know, she was a nurse and she knew that this was going to go really fast. And so I literally went back, I flew back to Los Angeles. I packed my entire life in a day, like a day. And like two days later, I was in a truck driving back to St. Louis. I just said goodbye to my band, said goodbye to everything and came back to St. Louis. I was with my mom for the last few months of her life. And then I relocated to St. Louis and and after a little bit, started touring uh, by myself um, in a Chevy Lumina minivan, um, playing in clubs and colleges around the country, secular stuff, just playing folk music. And thought, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this happen. Uh, but I, you know, I, I knew Los Angeles wasn't going to be my long-term place, and clearly, my mom was my priority by far. So it was all meant to be. Let's put it that way. And my mom's death was tragic, but it also was a springboard for my independence and for my understanding that. I would have to make this happen, you know, truly make this happen myself, whatever I was. So I, I learned a lot from being, you know, alone. My parents were divorced at that point. So it it really was sort of like me just sort of navigating on my own. And, and I think it was helpful for me. It helped me muscle up in a lot of ways that have benefited me since. So I, I started playing secular music. I did that for several years. And it wasn't until my late 20s, I was about 27 or so. And you know the story, but I was touring in a, a band at that point, Rick Rec Band. We were playing clubs and colleges. And I would travel quite a bit. And in between, I would teach guitar to a few students. And one of my guitar students was a camp director here in St. Louis at a conservative camp, sort of in a Ramah-style camp. She'd grown up in Ramah. Her father had been a song leader, and she couldn't find a song leader. And she wasn't going to have camp without music, so she decided to take guitar lessons. And I happened to be the guy she found. So, like, she literally came to my front door, and I started teaching her guitar. And while I was teaching her guitar, she would sort of half-jokingly, half-seriously asked me to be the song leader at camp because she didn't want to be the director and the song leader. She was only doing it because she had to be. <laughs> and so I, I wasn't interested in doing this. I, I'd never been to Jewish camp. I didn't know any Jewish songs except for a couple of the ones that I remembered from Nifty in high school. And I was really serious about pursuing my band that I was in. But she convinced me after about 11 months when we were getting close to the summer. She made me, as they say in The Godfather, an offer I couldn't refuse. And I took the job and it, it you know, it really changed my chemistry. It, it was epiphanal for me. The first day of camp, we were singing tefillah together. She was like this incredible, inspirational speaker and, and made Judaism so exciting and fun and relevant and cool. I felt like it was a rock concert. It was tefillah, but it was like 250 kids, myself, my guitar student director of this camp next to each other and these kids singing at the top of their lungs. And I was, you know, keep in mind, I never experienced Jewish camp before. So I was blown away by this. And I was blown away by this, not just by the energy of it and the rock concerty of it, but I was blown away by how much I was learning. I was blown away by the opportunity that I had to teach about the idea that Judaism could be cool. And I was blown away by the idea that Judaism could be cool. Like, I didn't know this. Where I left off was my education, my Jewish education left off when I was 12, when I was learning about, you know, important stories, you know, from the Torah and learning about, you know, remedial things about like how to read and, you know, what kashrut is, that kind of thing. What I never learned was about tikkun olam. What I never learned was about why Judaism is living and breathing and relevant to us as people who live in this millennium.
And so that's when that whole thing started for me all at once. It was explosive for me. And I, I, um, I, I started writing Jewish music for the camp. I started creating workshops on diversity and uh, anti-bias and discrimination, things to teach children and teenagers about ways to be engaged in social action. And it just really changed everything. I gave notice to my band, you know, a few months after camp, and I created a studio in my basement and recorded my first Jewish album, which is called Tove, which had all the songs that I'd written for the camp, a bunch of eyes, hands, ears kinds of songs. I had no idea that it was going to take off with teenagers. Um, That was bizarre for me. But the biggest I had no idea was that my guitar student, who was the director of the camp and was my mentor, truly my day-to-day mentor at the camp, who was teaching me about Judaism, was teaching me about myself, was teaching me how to work with children, ended up becoming my dear friend, and then eventually my wife, Elisa. And ever since has been very much my partner in the mission and the work that we do and, and, and continues to inspire me every day to, to continue doing it. I mean, I'd be inspired anyway, but she really takes it to a different place. Yeah. And I know Elisa, she's an amazing person and leader. You know, I, on this podcast, I, I've interviewed a number of leaders in the Jewish community and in the lead up to our conversations, I asked them, who, who are the teachers that inspired you? And with you, I didn't have to <laughs> scratch too too much below the surface. I knew the story and I, I know how much Elisa means to you, not just as your spouse and partner, but as a key teacher in your life. Yeah, she she's the bar. You know, she raises it all the time. And yeah, I, I, you know, when I think about my teachers, it's interesting because I didn't grow up in this contemporary Jewish music kind of world. So I, I can't really say that. I mean, there's people who become my teachers, like Craig Taubman has been one. And, you know, there's a few other, it's certainly Rabbi David Ingber, people who I, I look up to. But the people who really influenced me and continue to influence me are my mom, who passed away, you know, 20 something years ago. But she was a major influence for me about what kind of human I wanted to be and about what Judaism means and about what teaching teachers uh, is all about, like how you can really have impact. She was like the the beginning for me. And then Elisa was the person who said, this is your gift. This is where you can sit it and this is where you can grow it. And I'll be there every step of the way. You know, she's been my right hand woman, the, you know, every step since. So that's awesome. my two women. <laughs> Mom and wife. So Rick Recht is born, so to speak, at, at that juncture. I'm just wondering if you could sort of paint the landscape of the Jewish musical scene like 20 or so years ago when you first started producing music. And I, I'm also curious, you know, I, I'm in chaplaincy and I know from my Christian colleagues that Christian rock is a genre that engages younger generations of people. I'm curious to what extent knowledge of or awareness of Christian rock as a genre affected you and how that helped you develop your niche in Jewish music. Sure. Well, when I first started playing Jewish music, remember, like, I didn't grow up in this place. So like mm-hmm. one of the very first things that I did is that Lisa my wife, who was the not my wife at the time, took me to Haba Nashira, which is a, a songwriting workshop that's based in um, Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. It's part of the reform movement. And that was my first exposure to see some of the people like Debbie Friedman and Jeff Klepper and a lot of these giants in Jewish music were all there at once. However, it was clear to me at the time that 
I was the only person within almost 10 years of my own age at that time. There was no one who was doing music who was like, they were all in their late 30s, at least, if not mid 40s or 50s at that point. And here I was like 27 or 28, and I, there was no one else doing it. It was surprising to me. So they were of the baby boomer generation. and Yeah. I mean, they were very relevant. I absolutely don't mean to say anything about, they're very relevant and doing a lot of great things still. However, as far as contemporaries, the only person who was doing something similar to what I was doing was Dan Nichols. And I didn't know Dan. As a matter of fact, I didn't even meet Dan for another year and a half or two after I was playing. I would just hear about Dan. So for me, my influence was not about my contemporaries. It was the secular world, you know, the it, it, uh, both musically, people that had influenced me in the secular world, as well as from a business and a quality standpoint in a, uh, you know, in terms of like what touring looked like. Like when I played my first Jewish summer tour, I played about 50 camps and we brought like sound and lights and, you know, screens and all this stuff. And, you know, the places were like, this has never happened in the Jewish world. And now given this has been happening for decades in the rest of the world. And it was shocking to me that the Jewish world had not leveraged even the most basic technology to uh, amplify the power of Jewish music yet. I was like, wow, I wasn't disappointed because I had no expectations in the first place. I was enthused because I looked at this as a fertile field. I said, wow, it, you know, because I, as I was playing these camps, it was like just dropping fire in a dry field or something like that. I mean, it was just like a fire explosion, you know? And I said, I can do this, you know? And that's where the Christian world came in, you know, not too long after, maybe four or five years into my career, I, I started doing some interfaith initiatives with the National Civil Rights Museum called Tear Down the Walls. And part of the initiative was a big interfaith, multicultural kinds of kind of concert. And we would base these often at megachurches because they had the larger homes, like a lot of seats, and they had the technology to serve as a, uh, as a home for these larger concerts. But what I got to see in these situations was the way really bright, brilliant pastors were leveraging Christian music to inspire and to engage their youth, young adults, and families. I saw that and I was like, wow, we have to replicate this in the Jewish world. We got to copy this and, and make this happen because it's incredibly effective. It's got to work in, in the Jewish world. And that was really what inspired me to start Jewish Rock Radio and um, also Song Leader Boot Camp, you know, leadership training. I, it was right at that time period that I was also asking myself, I was at an inflection point uh, where I was asking myself uh, what I was going to be able to do to impact more people, but not tour anymore. Because I was, sorry, not tour more dates. Because I was already touring maybe 150 days a year, and I knew I could only impact I could only play so many dates a year, but I wanted to do something beyond playing my guitar. At that time, you were playing like just in the summer, I think 50 summer camps. Summer. Yeah, and then I was playing throughout the year too on top of that. And I thought, you know something, there's got to be a way to go to transcend even just Rick Recht as a touring artist. Like I, I realized I really want to help develop a leadership path for myself, but also for the Jewish world. Um, and I also want to, develop a mass communication channel, better ways for us to communicate with each other. And the Christian world couldn't have been a better analog, a better model. I just looked at it and said, that's it. Like, I, I don't have to be smart to do this. <laughs> I just have to copy, good copy, a, a trace artist, <laughs> just tracing yeah. the lines.
Just to put things in perspective for the listeners, when you were touring camps, and you still do tour camps, but uh, when, yeah. when you were going to like 50 camps a summer, that's like that like comes out to 35,000 kids in a single summer. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable the impact that you had. And, you know, I, I learned from my Christian colleagues in chaplaincy that they use the terminology of ministry, yeah, music ministry and youth ministry. And while you might not have rabbinic ordination, you have taken on this mantle of ministry in which you, you've really connected with people in meaningful ways and developed their spirituality. I'm in awe of that. And I want to explore things a little deeper. Let me play a couple of clips from your early repertoire. Hine Matov, the biblical verse, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in harmony, and Al Shloshad Devarim, the Talmudic passage on three things the world stands, on Torah, ritual service, and acts of loving kindness. Hine Matov in performing Jewish rock music, you're more than a singer-songwriter, Rick. You don't just write and perform songs. You are a Jewish educator. You are a, a teacher. You take Hebrew phrases from the Bible, Talmud, and Jewish liturgy, and you put them to music. So you are teaching Jewish values as you perform. How did you discover that what you were doing was part of this larger mission of Jewish education? And how has that affected your own sense of Jewish commitment and Jewish spirituality? Well, when I started playing Jewish music at that, that Jewish day camp, part of the epiphany that happened for me at that moment, and it was like at a, a, a pin drop kind of moment, okay? Like right there was that I suddenly realized that I was an educator and that I was now in a rock star package. All my life, I wanted to be a rock star, okay? Um, but all of a sudden, I realized that this was going to go further than that. Um, this was going to go a lot further than that, that I had an opportunity to really, and a responsibility. Once, once I started using music as my vehicle, once as my tool for connecting with people, that that was like rocket fuel, and I had to be a little bit careful because the the speed of connection and the depth of connection is so intense um, that 
You could say a lot of things and a lot and people will believe and sing a lot of things and and those words that they sing and the the tone that they sing it in will sink into their bodies and their souls and um, whether it's right or wrong or <laughs> anything and so it became really clear that i had to be cognizant of the responsibility that i now had even as a day camp song leader but pr particularly when i went out that first summer and realized that there were going to be like 35 40,000 kids I felt confident that I was going to rock them, you know what I mean? But what I didn't feel confident on, and, and, and I think in a healthy way, I was nervous about was the impact and the influence that I would have on their Judaism. So I've always taken that really seriously. I've taken it seriously for myself, like in terms of what I write, in terms of the, the words that I share, the, the values that I share, the accents that I, you know, the, just the Hebrew itself. You know, I, there's so many layers of learning that are going on for both me and for the people that hear the music and for thousands of people that I'll never meet or even see that hear the music. So it, I look at it as sticky, sort of. It sticks to our experiences. It becomes the soundtrack of our lives. It, it just has strength to do so many things to our lives. And But we have to be a little bit careful when we're when we're playing with it. You know, it's a, it's a holy... Um, a holy medium, so to speak. Mm. Since you mentioned that, I'm wondering if there's a time where you felt you were approaching too much and how did you scale back and regroup or retool? That's a good question. Uh, so yeah, there's been a ton of times where I was afraid that I was getting too close to the edge. <laughs> okay. You know, like when I'm re leading a, like a rabbinic or a cantorial conference or standing up in front of educators, like of schools or, you know, people who have, you know, have much higher pedigrees than myself when it comes to Jewish education, that, that's happened through my entire career. And so um, I have to approach those situations currently and throughout my career with a, a healthy trepidation and 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 humility, and also remind myself that I do have something to offer, that I, I have my own strengths, and that I should um, always remember in front of whom I stand, and realize that I'm, you know, we're 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 in dialogue together, we're collaborating, and so that's been really a a, um, a healthy way for me to walk in all of these doors that sometimes are hard to open for me. They're a little scary as I'm opening the door and walking in, as I just remind myself that it's okay. You know, we're, we're all human here. We all have something to learn from each other. And then it works out. I haven't had anything backfire within that place. You know, as long as there's that humility, that healthy trepidation, and that important recognition of the B'Tselem Elohim, the spark of godliness that we all have. So does that spark of B'Tselem Elohim, is that a value that helps keep you grounded? 100%. Mm -hmm. 100%. I, 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 remind that, I remind myself of that daily, like in my daily meditation. I, it, it's, just, it's something that helps ground, ground me in my life, not just my career, but it helps me just remember that there's nothing to fear, that um, it's Besheret, everything's Besheret. This was all meant to be. As I said in the, the book, The Alchemist, I don't know if you ever read that, the Maktung, like as it was written, like this is all written, this whole map of, of my life, of your life, of all of our lives, it's all written. It's just for us to explore and to, and God willing to learn the lessons that we're supposed to learn here. And I just, I just remind myself that every day that all humans are extensions of God and of each other and the godliness in each other. And so it helps me be a decent person. It helps me be modest and 
humble in, in ways I might not naturally be, um, you know, because we all have an ego, of course, I certainly do, but it, help, it helps keep my feet on the ground and remember that we all have pain, we all have challenges, we all have something to celebrate, and, you know, we all have a light. That's great. You mentioned your major initiatives of Jewish rock radio and song leader boot camp. Rabbi Ed Feinstein, a frequent faculty member of Song Leader Boot Camp, said, I think on your podcast, 18 Questions podcast, but I've heard him say it in various venues that he loves Song Leader Boot Camp because it's one annual Jewish conference that he goes to where it's guaranteed to be full of joy and hope and confidence in the Jewish future. And that resonates with me because the times that I've been there, I get a spiritual charge that carries me through the year. So can you talk a bit more about how Song Leader Boot Camp came about and what need is it addressing in the Jewish world today? Sure. You know, I started Song Leader Boot Camp at that time when I was looking around and trying to figure out how I could have more of an exponential impact in the Jewish world. My mission has always been about strengthening Jewish identity and engagement, and some of that through the power of music, but also through other means. And when I looked around at that time, I saw a need for leadership training, a real lack of opportunities for people to become more powerful and effective leaders in the Jewish world. We have schools, you know, for if you want to be a rabbi or a cantor, that train certain aspects of being a rabbi or a cantor or being a Jewish educator, that kind of thing. But there's still a lack of all types of training, whether it's for clergy, but I'm, I'm talking about all types of training in the Jewish world. There's just not a lot of opportunities. And I thought that's, that's something that I want to be involved with. And I, I looked at myself as an aggregator. I still do. And I still feel like this is a really important part of the Jewish world is leadership training. I'm more important than ever, as a matter of fact. As, as the times are changing, we need powerful and effective and visionary and uh, innovative leadership. And I, I look at myself as an aggregator, as someone who can recognize talent um, and can bring that talent together. And that's what Song Leader Bootcamp, it, it started as something for song leaders. The name is sort of a misnomer. Now, the vast majority of the people have nothing to do with song leading. These are people from all walks of Jewish life, all levels of experiences, all different ages, everywhere from Jewish life. And they come together and the sort of the Jewish magic pixie dust is that the Without saying it, all the, the titles are left at the door. You know, the, the, there's no egos. Everyone is there, not just to sing. You know, people from the outside who are, haven't been there before think it's like a music conference. Yes, it's drenched. It's soaked in Jewish music. But it's really about um, navigating and creating meaningful and engaging community life. And everyone can feel that there. We've got this perfect microcosm of what we'd like to see the Jewish world be. We've got it there. Um, uh, you know, whether it's in St. Louis or last year we were virtual, which ended up being incredible also. And I think we learned some amazing lessons then when we couldn't sing in harmony with each other, put our arms around each other. I think we learned that probably one of the most important lessons we've learned in the 12 or 13 year history. I think this will be our bar mitzvah year coming up that we learned that the connection that we share transcends even the music itself, that we, 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 we do have a common purpose at, uh, at Song Leader Bootcamp, which is to really learn from each other and, um, and to create a, a more engaging and inclusive 
um, Jewish world and to empower individuals from teens to young adults to adults to older adults to be part of making that change. And so it's been a, like a gift of a lifetime for me. You know, if it, if it all ended today, I would look back at it and say, gosh, I, I got so lucky. I got so lucky to be part of this. I got so lucky to bring together some of my heroes and to discover some of my heroes and to meet some of the coolest people in my entire life through this this gathering that I just sort of, you know, have been a part of. I, I really feel that way. I, it's sort of a little bit of a wag the dog situation where I feel like some of this got bigger than I could have anticipated. And it's been just a, a delicious treat. Yeah, I love how earlier you said, you know, at a certain point in your touring career, uh, you, a, a switch flipped. I think that's what you said. And you wanted to reach out and teach and teach teachers like your mother did. And that's exactly what you're doing in this important work. And it reminds me of the yeah. Midrash that I, I've studied before, but I heard in synagogue just, I think, a week ago. We read the story of the spies, and there's a Midrash that compares the leadership styles of Moses and Joshua. Moses is likened to the sun and Joshua is likened to the moon. Moses energized the Jewish people and provided light and warmth, but was sometimes too hot and sometimes too bright to look at directly. And he also outshone everyone else. And Joshua, on the other hand, was like the moon in reflecting the light of Moses. He wasn't as domineering but like the moon, he let the, sh the stars around him also shine. So I thought of that Midrash uh, in connection with your work, because there are times where you are the sun, but you're able to, to step back. And in a way, it's, it's your superpower. It's your, your ability to shine light on others and celebrate their achievements. You're a, a teacher of teachers. So I'm curious, how has uh, this philosophy of lifting others up, where do you think that came from? And how do you deal with the tension inside you if the rock star <laughs> yeah. wants to outshine the moon? Because there's got to be that tension. I mean, you love to be center stage and you wouldn't be performing if you didn't get some sort of rush out of that. So how do you manage that sun-moon dynamic? God, that is really cool that you asked that question. So I feel like this is maybe one of the, uh, you know, I feel like we're all born into this, this lifetime to face certain questions and to learn certain lessons in our lives. And I think this is one major lesson for me. Now, I grew up seeing my mom being an incredible teacher of teachers. She taught people how to be independent, but also how to give back and to give to other people. And I sort of watched that, but I also grew up, you know, in our society looking at Elvis and all these other people where I, I just wanted to be a rock star, you know? And then when I got a piece of that in the Jewish world, it was, it was incredible. The light was burning bright and it felt really good, you know? And when I first started Song Leader Bootcamp, yeah, I was, I was a big part of that. But as, as Song Leader Bootcamp grew, I, so did this notion of Seem Soom, like the idea that, that really my greatest role, I, I could feel the lesson unfolding for me. I could feel the, the, the question sitting right in front of me, which is, can you not only back out, can you aggregate and then back out and let people shine? It wasn't just that. It was, can you find a joy 
in them shining. And what's happened over the last several years for me is not only have I released that part of my ego that used to sort of say, I, I want to be in that too. Do you know what I mean? But I actually don't find as much joy <laughs> as being the center of attention. It's, I get actually get a lot more joy from seeing other people shine. Now, um, it's part, I, I don't know, it's, it's hard to explain, but I, I, I'm finding myself actually backing out so much in a lot of areas of my performative life or even leadership training sometimes, you know, that I, that, um, that I, I have people around me, including Elisa say, Rick, you, you know, you still can do this. You still can play <laughs> guitar. Like you didn't play like, or do anything like in an entire day, like a hundred people did and you didn't do one thing, you know, it's not bad to do that. And it's weird because it, it doesn't even compute for me emotionally anymore. I'm perfectly happy. And when I mean perfectly happy, not in spite of, or instead of or anything like that, I'm literally in a perfect place being an administrator of creating the platform for people to do their thing and just stepping back and watching it. It feels good for me. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's just a really, it's a good question <laughs> that you, you ask. Mm -hmm. And, and it's been a, a, a very interesting experience for me taming my own ego and redirecting where my source of excitement and pride and light comes from. Well, there's a song that you wrote that's become one of your signature songs that speaks exactly to this theme. It, the song is called Hallelujah, and I will play it now. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I close my eyes, take a deep breath. I am humble, I am blessed. I feel my purpose. I make my plan, I will step up, I will stand, I will learn, I will teach, I will observe, I will reach, I will inspire, I will pray, set a new standard, celebrate, and I sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Now that song basically outlines the curriculum of the class that you teach at Song Leader Boot Camp called Star State, in which you teach how performers get themselves mentally ready to perform. In fact, the, the lessons from this song I taught my daughter when I helped her prepare for her bat mitzvah earlier this year. And I, I'm a dad and I'm allowed to brag. I think she's set a new standard. Nice. <laughs> I love hearing that. I'm always moved by that song. It speaks so much about you and your mission. Can you talk about how you were inspired to write this song and what that means to you? 
Yeah, I mean, the writing of the song came in a shockingly simple way, as some songs do. You know, I was just hiking, and it was a few weeks before a song leader boot camp, and I was in just a really good mental space. I was in Southern California in the desert, and I was just walking around, and I started hearing myself say, hallelujah, which is not a word that I would have said out loud. Or even today, I don't walk around going, hey, hallelujah. You know, I mean, it's just not a word I would say. And so, and I just, the words, I just was thinking about this gathering that was about to happen, um, and uh, thinking about the people I was going to be seeing and learning from and sharing with, and I was just so inspired. So it was so easy for me to just say these words. They were exactly what I felt. Um, so, and, and and the proof of it was like when I brought it to Songwriter Bootcamp that year, it was just like ignition switch because I, it, it was just like a, what what Songwriter Bootcamp is all about. It, it wasn't an accident. I, I'm part of creating this place. I'm I, I, I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> I just described described it in probably the most simple terms in this song, and and so it's going to resonate with people who've been there. And so that's that's how the song happened. And um, but um, more importantly for me, that song has become a mantra for me, where I actually meditate and use that song um, or the words of that song to help me focus on a pretty regular basis. I go through the words of that song. You know, I close my eyes, I take a deep breath, you know, I think about my blessings, I, th I think about, you know, how I'm going to function on this day, uh, how I'm going to be present, and how I'm going to step up and set new standards, how I'm going to celebrate, how I'm going to listen and learn and pray, you know, I mean, every part of that song is part of my personal mantra, and it's taken on a life of its own for me in my own spiritual journey, particularly the one that I, my micro journey, which is just being present on a daily basis. You know, the last time I saw you, Rick, in person was in St. Louis at Song Leader Boot Camp in February 2020. I think I was waiting for the school bus to go to the JCC. I was standing in the hotel lobby, CNN on, and there was a Chiron going across the bottom of the screen people in a Seattle nursing home dying from a virus that came from China. You know, I was concerned, but went about my business not knowing what was going to come. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I remember from that conference. But another thing, I discovered you and I are both early risers. And <laughs> we both went to the hotel treadmills at like 6.30 a.m. before anyone else in the conference was awake. So I decided to seize the opportunity to pick your brain about starting this podcast, which at the time was just an idea. At that time, again, that's February 2020, I thought it would be a nice project for the next summer vacation coming up. But a month later, I found myself sitting at home in quarantine, which allowed me to expedite my teacher podcast and bring it out into the world a little sooner. But that conversation on the treadmills really helped add the spark. And I'm so grateful to you for that. I'm grateful to you for that. That was super fun and, and <laughs> funny, um, you know, just to get into that kind of conversation. It was a lengthy conversation. Here we are just treadmilling next to each other. <laughs> I love right. it. It was great. It's a great memory. And yeah, who could have known what was about to happen to our world? Yeah, so here we are more than a year later, and I expect that we will look back on the last year of COVID and reflect on both the challenges and the opportunities it created in all aspects of our lives. So I'd like to ask you to reflect on the 
impact of COVID on the world of Jewish music. What were the losses and what were the gains? And what lessons from the last year will you apply in your work going forward? Yeah, it's a huge question. And, you know, I could, it's easy to reflect, you know, hindsight being 2020, it's not as easy to project where things are going to be. But I'm going to stick to the blessings. And I mean, there's a few things that we can say that are a little more challenging, which is obviously at certain points, it was very difficult for our, our Jewish music community and many of our Jewish music colleagues because our, our live touring just halted immediately. And also, you know, we went to a virtual space and in a lot of ways that devalued Jewish music because people were playing their music for free at that point. And in synagogues and communities were consuming that music for free and adjusted their expectations about how much music should cost, maybe permanently in some ways. Okay. So what may have been cost X before now cost Y, and it's going to be hard to get back to X. So that's the challenging part. I think some of the positives that have clearly come out of it is that the Jewish world has muscled up dramatically on technology. Your average grandma can easily access Zoom now, okay? And because of that technology, because of the virtual technology, we found that not only Jewish artists, but Jewish leaders of all shapes and sizes, talent from all over the world can touch communities at a distance, but through vir in a virtual space can touch, can, we can bring talent to our communities at a much lower cost, at a much higher volume, like more frequently, and of greater variety, meaning more people than we could have ever imagined. So it's great for the Jewish world. In some cases, depending on the Jewish music artist, there will be advantages to that. There, there have been advantages to that. The Jewish music world is always going, has been and will always be a place for entrepreneurs. It will never be easy to make a living playing Jewish music, but we do more than Jewish music. We do Jewish education. And there's a lot of opportunities for the people who are able to navigate this space and leverage it to their advantage. And so I, I think there's a lot of possibilities now that this virtual space exists to from a Jewish music artist as, a, as well as a Jewish leader perspective to reach people we never could have reached before at a greater frequency. While it may be a lower cost, the quantity will more than make up for the incremental loss of you know dollars, that kind of thing, if that makes sense. If you made $3,000 before and now you can only charge 300, but you can play in 60 places, you're gonna make a heck of a lot more money. You know what I mean? So, it, but you have to be able to play in 60 places. <laughs> okay, it's all math. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I think we've also learned to connect effectively in this space. No, it's not the same as touching and putting our arms around each other and hearing harmonies, but I think we've really stretched ourselves to find new innovative ways to connect with each other. So this was important for the Jewish world at a time when the Jewish world is doing some pretty deep introspection anyway, okay, before COVID. I think this may, want, may well have been one of the greatest gifts that could have come to the Jewish world. We know that the Jewish world is experiencing a lot of challenges when it comes to synagogue life, bricks and mortar, traditional institutions, movements, that kind of thing. We see a degradation of all of those areas, okay? And so I think COVID gave everyone, particularly people in institutional life, a chance to, to slow down, to get out of the patterns that we've been in and to pivot and to look at things in an entirely different light. So we've got this beautiful opportunity that we've had, okay? And so the question is, what will we do with it? I think the answer is some people will try to get right back into the patterns that they've been in before 
and will experience the exact same challenges that they were experiencing before, but even greater. Okay. I think that some people will try to seize the day and, and embrace the hybrid literally and figuratively, uh, virtual and in-person, but the hybrid of mind space. And we'll really start to stretch and use these new muscles that we've developed during this time period. And then there'll be some people who are complete renegades and will we'll move on and, and start entirely different things that were never even thought of or dreamed of before. Where I will go, I don't know. I'm heavily engaged in Jewish rock radio, in J-Kids radio, in Song Leader Bootcamp. These are platforms that are about way more than music. And, and I feel a responsibility to continue supporting all of those people as they dream about what they're going to do next. That's my role, okay? Is to bring people together, to keep providing support for them, to shine a light on them while they do their thing, whatever their thing is. As far as what I do as, a, as far as a, a personal like Jewish touring music artist and creator of music, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'll just see what happens. I'm not so concerned about that. I'm not worried about that. I'm not, I'm not even like driven in that level. I'm, I'm not concerned about anything. I think everything's going to be just fine. I want to single out two artistic achievements of yours in the last year that touched me and my family personally. So it's, it's really out of sense of gratitude for what you did during COVID. One was the series of concerts on Zoom for the Ramak camping movement. And you did it with Rabbi Joshua Shafsky, and in a half an hour, you synthesized basically a, a day of camp. You had a uh, there was a cooking moment and mm -hmm. singing and tefillah and it was just it was brilliant and i can tell i i will never forget the day that we got the official word that ramah was shut down for the summer of 2020 and the tears in my house i imagine it was the same in yours and with many people you know but you helped salvage that summer for us so our household is grateful to you for those concerts. And then also um, what you did on the high holidays last year, you and Shira Klein and Rabbi Josh created this high holiday family service that you were, you subcontracted to synagogues. You provided a great service to the community when the, when the vast majority of congregations could not create a, a web-based family service. So I'm grateful to you for that. I'm wondering if there's that there are any other specific projects from the last year that stand out that you're proud of. Well, I mean, I'm proud of those projects and, you know, and I did several more like that. There's series where I, I call them all-star projects where I would bring together some of the top artists and educators in Jewish life. We would make videos of whether it was a service or a concert or different types of education like tefillot or you know things for religious school and really go with this idea that we could create a really high quality Jewish educational inspiring product with the best of the best and bring it to a lot of communities that could never have afforded maybe even one of the people, much less all of the people in that experience. And then on top of it, this was part of the formula, was to customize it, is to make it feel really personal, like it was for that community. So like the rabbi, the canner, or the educator would do an intro or a Devar Torah or, or a closing or something like that. So, I mean, the intention was to high quality, customized, low cost, and really ease of use, meaning like, uh, 
technologically very, very easy for them to give to their communities. So there are a lot of different shapes and sizes of these projects that I did over the last year, but they all sort of went with that same formula once I discovered it uh, around April of COVID beginning went to, to, of 2020. And uh, so there were all kinds of projects. We did one for JCC Camps of North America, Havdalah Shabbat series. We did another series for synagogues called Shana Shel Shira, which was a 10-part series, an educational series. And, you know, I think there'll be more of these kinds of things in the future, whether I do them or whether other people do them. I'm proud of us for coming together and doing our thing. And I'm thankful for the congregations and communities that believed in us and trusted us and jumped in and, and decided beyond the money stuff, decided that they really wanted to do something high end for their communities, that they really wanted to raise the bar for their communities rather than to let COVID beat them. You know, and I, and I think as a result, we, we all learned together and we all celebrated together. Yeah, you alluded to how in one of, the, one of the ways in which COVID was a gift to the Jewish community is it woke up our institutions to the, the need of greater inclusion and having Zoom gathering, it allowed people to participate who might not be able to go to a physical space for whatever reason. I've noticed over the years and love the fact that a prominent theme at Song Leader Boot camp is inclusion. Yeah. <clears throat> in fact, at the last conference that you did on Zoom this year uh, because of COVID, um, there was a very moving dialogue between Rabbi Rebecca Dubow, who is deaf, and Rabbi Lauren Tuckman, who was blind. Yeah. And it was just powerful, powerful. It just went right to the heart. What does the Jewish community need to do to foster greater inclusion of people of all abilities? And how can music educators help to bring about that greater inclusion? It's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of answers to that question, but the answer that I, I'll share that comes to my mind primarily is empowering those who know the most about inclusion to lead the conversation. So that is why Rebecca Dubo and Lauren Tuckman were leading that conversation. That is why Sandra Lawson was leading a, a conversation about Jews of color. It's really important that we look at the leadership and power structure in the Jewish world. And if the, if we want to have conversations about all types of inclusion, then we need to make sure that the people who are in the groups that are marginalized are leading the conversation. That's the most important thing. I think everything flows out from there. Those people who are already part of our Jewish community are very happy and, and very kind about sharing their truth and humble about taking those leadership positions. They're not eager, okay? But they're nice enough to honor us to be put into those positions, okay? It's not like Rebecca Dubo was knocking down our door to talk about inclusion. We were knocking down her door, but she was nice enough, you know, to walk in and to share with us her experience and her truth and very gentle about welcoming us to look at things in a new light. And so that, that's, I think, the way the Jewish world, and particularly our Jewish music colleagues who write about this and experience this, can really be effective allies, is to be effective listeners. That's so important. I want to go back uh, when we were talking earlier about development of your career and Christian rock and its relationship to Jewish rock. You mentioned your program that you did with the National Civil Rights Center in Memphis. 
I'm also reminded that last year was challenging, not just in dealing with the pandemic, but in our society's crises in racial and economic justice. In my experience at the Song Leader Boot Camp, there's, there's a strong social justice vibe. I mean, it's not an advocacy place. It's not, you know, getting ready to lobby to go to Washington, but there's just this feeling there that we need to do what's just. And I, I learned with one of your key faculty members there, Rabbi Susan Talvi, my listeners will note that uh, she also spoke with me on my teacher podcast. So you can find that ah. in the feed. I'm curious, Rick, how did you develop your social justice consciousness? And why do you think it's become a prominent feature in your art and in your teaching and in your leadership training? I think as a kid, I, I developed a sensitivity to the concept of justice because I wasn't cool. <laughs> like I was a chubby, you know, kid and, uh, and I was sort of a middle kid. I wasn't like at the bottom of the heap or the top of the, I wasn't a popular kid or anything like that, but I was sensitive and I would look around me and I would see kids getting bullied and hurt and being mean to each other, including being mean to me. Through a lucky twist of fate, I guess, I when I was in sixth grade, I lost some weight and I, I had a beautiful teacher who brought me in and asked me to bring my guitar in and I played Elvis songs and girls screamed and I became sort of popular that year kind of thing. And, and it also my grades got really good because my confidence got high. And it, but I was, you know, my, my, my soul, my heart was injured, you know, from what had happened and, and made sensitive at that point. So I never lost that side. And I was never super popular, by the way, but I, you know, I was just liked enough. <laughs> <laughs> but it was enough to sensitize me for the rest of my life. My mother was very much into social action. And then as a young adult, when I started doing Jewish stuff, as a matter of fact, before I started doing Jewish stuff, Susan Talvey was the first person that I met in St. Louis. And she's been a major influence for me, as well as another dear friend of mine, Rabbi Micah Greenstein, one of my best friends in Memphis, Tennessee, who is also deeply engaged in social action in Memphis and throughout the country. So these are some of my heroes, my mom, Rabbi Talvi, Rabbi Greenstein. And so they really helped me to realize that I could have a role. Once again, as an aggregator and a supporter, I, I don't feel like I know that much or enough, whatever, I, on certain levels, I feel like I'm, I know what I don't know, and it's a lot. I know enough to know that I want to put one step forward and another step forward. And I want to ask people like Susan Talvey and Sandra Lawson and Rabbi Micah Greenstein and other people to come and present who really know what they're talking about, who are on the front lines um, so that we, the rest of the population can be at minimum decent advocates and hopefully even more than that. And I hope to be more than that, you know, as I, as I grow up, we'll see, but you know, this is where I am. And, and I'm, I feel very fortunate to have crossed paths with particularly Susan Talbot. Are there any other initiatives that you're excited about or anything else that you want to mention or plug that you're working on as we emerge from this pandemic state? I think the most recent thing that I've been working on that's important to me along with the other things is J Kids Radio, which is a home not only for Jewish kids music, but for Jewish family engagement. You know, we have 
all kinds of mediums that we're working with, whether it's music or coloring, like physical drawing or storytelling. And we're exploring all kinds of ways to engage family and to engage Jewish children. Um, there's a website, jkidsradio.com, and, a, and an app for that, and as well as social media, where we do a lot of educating on the, that front. So I'm very exciting, excited about the work we're doing on that front. But I'm excited about Jewish Star, which is an initiative that we do, a leadership training initiative we're doing for to educate, to identify and to attract and to cultivate Jewish teens and young adults who want to have an impact in the Jewish world. There's a lot of things I'm doing. That I'm, you know, for, I, I'm, I'm one of the lucky people. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about a lot of the things that we're working on. And, uh, and excited about you. I'm excited about like what you're doing and you know sharing and have these kinds of conversations because these are important conversations with our, our, the people, the, the teachers that we respect. And, and you're a teacher I respect too very much, especially when you're on a treadmill. <laughs> so I'm very appreciative to, to, to share this time with you. Thank you. Are you doing any touring coming up? I'm doing a little bit, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm actually doing a lot of hiking coming up. Um, it's been my dream that when I would be able to safely get out of my home, that my wife, Elisa, and I would spend some really good time, in, intense time in nature. So we're, we're going to, I'll be playing this summer, but more importantly, I'm going to be hiking quite a bit. <laughs> Great. You need that replenishment. You have done so much over the past year, providing connection to so many people. And I thank you for that. Rick, you are my, really are my teacher in so many ways. You've not only inspired me, but you've inspired my three children, two of whom have been and are veterans of Songwriter Boot Camp, and one hopefully coming up in a couple of years. Awesome. Um, I want to offer you my most sincere blessing for good health, strength, courage and continued creativity going forward and only good things thank you man love to you and your sweet family and uh, can't wait to see you in real life i wish to thank my guest rick recht for joining me on the my teacher podcast please read the show notes where you can find more information about rick including links to jewish rock radio j kids radio and song leader boot camp as I record this shortly before Father's Day weekend, I'm thrilled to share that my three children are all off to summer camp at long last. No matter where they are, though, they are my teachers, and they are all part of the My Teacher Podcast team. Theme music is composed and performed by Sam Bernstein. In the past, he's been our sound engineer. Since he's away, I attempted to do my own engineering and the sound of my voice may have been a little off. It's on me, folks. Production assistants are Noam Bernstein and Esther Bernstein, and internet art and graphic design are by Esther Bernstein. Let me also give a shout out to my wife, Ariella, who has let me use different corners of our house as a recording studio. I couldn't have done it without you guys. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I welcome comments, including suggestions for future guests at myteacherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out through Twitter at Podcast Teach, as well as Facebook and Instagram. We wouldn't end this outro without one more song from Rick Reck, and we'll go out with The Summer of Our Lives. 
In the meantime, may the wisdom of your teachers guide you, and may you be a teacher to others. This is the best time. This is the summer of our lives. These are the memories we make. These are the bonds we'll never break under the starlight. We stay up talking every night. We sing so loud we lose our voices. We laugh so hard we cry. This is the time of our lives. Shalom, Kaverim. These are the songs we'll always sing. We'll never forget these memories. Shalom, Kaverim. This is the best time. The summer of our lives, the summer of our lives.